We're always concerned that when markets lack direction and there isn't a fundamental driver, that returns are going to be lacklustre in those types of environments and that people can you know, get bored of trend following and go back to your earlier point is that, uh, well, you had one in 08, a great year, you know, a couple of good years here and there and then another banning year. Maybe we'll just wait two or three years and then they forget. So I think it's important that there's an allocation and a dialogue with investors now and that we don't, we don't slip into, you know, a too choppy markets for too long. Imagine spending an hour with the world's greatest traders. Imagine learning from their experiences, their successes, and their failures. Imagine no more. Welcome to Top Traders Unplugged, the place where you can learn from the best hedge fund managers in the world so you can take your manager due diligence or investment career to the next level. Before we begin today's conversation, remember to keep two things in mind. All the discussion we'll have about investment performance is about the past, and past performance does not guarantee or even infer anything about future performance. Also understand that there's a significant risk of financial loss with all investment strategies, and you need to request and understand the specific risks from the investment manager about their product before you make investment decisions. Here's your host, veteran hedge fund manager, Niels Kostrup Larsen. Hey, everyone, and welcome to another edition of Top Traders Unplugged, where Alan Dunn and I are joined today by David Galton, founder and chief investment officer of DG Partners as part of our miniseries focusing on the one investment strategy that beat everything else in 2022, namely trend following and managed futures more broadly. First off, David, it is great to have you on the podcast. Thanks so much for joining us today. We really have been looking forward to our conversation. I hope you're doing well. I guess you're in, in London today. Yeah, no, I'm in London. Uh very nice of you to invite me. Thank you. Absolutely. Now, before we dive into all the different topics that we're going to talk about, it would be nice to set the stage for our conversation a little bit and maybe give the audience uh, a bit of knowledge, a bit of background to your firm uh, and to yourself, and also maybe share a couple of highlights in terms of the strategies uh, you focus on and kind of where the business sta- uh, stands uh, as we have entered 2023. Yeah, certainly. So, well, DG Partners uh, was founded in 2002. Uh, We span out of JP Morgan, where I ran uh, one of the prop divisions, uh, trading, uh, running prop trading for JP Morgan in Europe. And we started trading a, well, we'd always traded various systematic strategies, but we started trend following in 2006, May 2006, actually. And then following a, you know, quite a good 2008, we decided to launch systematic as a standalone business. And at that point, we formed a joint venture with Brevin Howard, uh, and we formed a company called BHDG Systematic Trading, and it's the BHDG Systematic Trading that's the focus of our business today. Uh, we manage around three billion as a firm, uh, two and three quarters of it in trend following. Fantastic, great. That's a great uh, background. Appreciate that. Now, uh, we have different topics um, for today, and uh, what we normally do is uh, we kind of uh, jump back and forth between Alan and I uh, in terms of uh, bringing up the first uh, topic. So, uh, Alan, as as we normally do, why don't you uh, start off with where you want to go? Yeah, great. Uh, Thanks, Niels. Um, Morning, David. Um, So, it's interesting. A lot of people we talk to come from very much, you know, either a, 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 a quant background and did a lot of research in the markets and then got into trend following. Obviously, you, you come from a prop trading and there's a big macro flavor running through, obviously, your relationship with uh, Brevin Howard. So, so how does a, mac trader, a macro trader end up being a, such an advocate for trend following? <laughs> 
Uh, that's a very good question. Um, l- listen, you know, lots of strategies have, have, uh, and all different strategies have got their merits. I've, I've always had a, a bent towards having researchers work with me, and we've built lots of models, factor-based models in the past, trying to describe yield curves, trying to describe uh, currency movements, vol surfaces, and so on. But none of those were really robust. They could never really become independent, standalone trading strategies. They tended to be much more as inputs to a macro or RV-type trading strategies. And I guess back in the old days, you know, we kept hearing what CTAs were doing, uh, and we thought we'd quite like to work out for ourselves, perhaps, what, you know, rather than listen to rumors on the street. And that led us to develop a, what, what, I would, what I call our core trend or our classical approach to trend following, which is very much moving average and oscillator based. And, you know, after some testing, we launched that as a standalone strategy in 2006. And, yeah, I kind of realized that, you know, if you look back over long, long periods of time, you know, the returns in trend following are very robust. There's a persistent inertia in markets, if you like, which doesn't realize itself every year, but over periods of years, seems to be rarely stable. And if you can try and capture that in a, in a, in a consistent manner, you've got something that's really quite useful in a variety of different portfolios. And obviously, you've been around a lot of traders, you know, been at prop desks. Uh, um, do you think a lot of macro traders are trend followers themselves obviously everybody's trying to capture the same moves yeah now i remember talking to uh, a really great investor uh, from a, a very premier shop uh, some years ago when we were talking about you know we started this trend following business and he said yeah he said i said i never invest in trend followers per se he said i invest with lewis bacon and paul jones he said he said they're basically trend followers but much more fun to talk to <laughs> well, that's probably true <laughs> <laughs> and i thought i thought that was absolutely right <laughs> yeah. and i mean you touched on that kind of in, inertia in markets uh and how it's kind of there over time but not all the time i, I mean what what's what's your thought about why that is the case. I mean, when we ask people what does trend following work, you, you, know, you hear about different speeds of reactions, etc. But but then you'll have two or three year periods where trend following doesn't seem to be working and those biases are still there. So, I mean, when you think about it, how do, how do you think about it? Well, I mean, markets go, you know, ultimately go from one unstable equilibria to another unstable equilibria. They don't move in an immediate step from one stable position to the next stable position. So it really depends on market news, macroeconomic factors that are driving the individual commodity or or um, uh, uh, asset class. And sometimes, you know, there's really fundamental things happening, like last year, and markets were free to move and adjust. Um, and if we can, can, you can contrast that with, you know, what we call the dead decade, but um, I heard in other people in the industry call it, or you guys call it the dark age, uh, which might be nicer, but, you know, that horrible period of financial repression, sucking volatility out of markets, a deliberate policy tool to reduce risk premia and encourage uh, financial flows, you know, was an example of a period, a prolonged period, in fact, uh, where trend following, I wouldn't say it didn't work. I mean, you know, there were still positive returns, but they weren't as spectacular as they've been in the prior decade. Uh, and hopefully, uh, they won't be as good as uh, the coming decade. And, and you mentioned how you've done work with different researchers over the years, uh, factor-based models and stuff like that. And it sounds like you've got a very much a focus on pure trend. Is that is that, you know, is that a philosophical um, perspective? Yeah. 
Yeah, I, I think, you know, when going back to that Dark Age period, it, it became clear, you know, from 2010 that the authorities' desire was to suck vol out of markets. And, yeah, that's very bad for us because, it, you know, two things happen. Either you get high amp Markets are not really involved in You tend to get high-amplitude sideways markets, which are a disaster for typically for trend followers. You know, or you get low-amplitude, uh, you know, sharp reversal type markets, which, again, not really very good. And, um, you know, I think in that sort of early period, it became obvious that we should be trying to do something, perhaps, to adjust our models because the regime was quite different. And one thing we looked at was speeds because, you know, clearly if market's going to be less volatile, your expected return um, on any given trade is lower. Therefore, your transaction costs are higher. You should trade more slowly. Also, trends are harder to discern over longer periods. You know, over short periods, if you look at the JGB, you don't really see it's got anywhere. It's only when you look back over longer periods, you can discern the trend. So we thought about that um, and how far one should go in slowing when you talked about speeds. The problem is if you slow too much, you're going to lose all your skew because when markets turn, you're going to be stuck with, uh, you know, uh, for too long in the wrong in the wrong trade. So we kind of... You know, we, we philosophically don't want to try and maximize profits in the in a month or a quarter or even a year really we're trying to we want to be in this business we've been in it now you know 17 years we want to we want to be in it for the next 17 um, and produce you know stable robust profits going forward maybe one final one on this section before we move on I mean do you think it's, is it harder as somebody who has been a prop trader, macro trader, and you have views on the market and, and the world. Um, you know, one, one of the, uh, I suppose, the trend follower philosophy is really not to have a view on any market, but have a view that this is how markets behave. And that's kind of the edge. Whereas, obviously, you you must always have a view on, it, 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 do, do I like this position or not? Does that make it more difficult? Yeah, no, it's purely systematic. We don't trade. But, you know, I mean, obviously, we can bring, or I can bring some knowledge to the table when there are market blow-ups and we've got to decide on risk limits and what products we're trading. And also philosophically, because in that dead period, you know, there's a lot of pressure on trend followers to do other stuff. Every investor that came in said, yeah, you're a trend follower, but what else are you doing? You know, and, and we did try and uh, look at alternative sources of alpha. The problem that we had, or that I had with them, was that they tended to have two features. One was that they were factor-based. And the problem with factor-based models is they work very well until they don't. You know, you can predict the dollar-yen with 10-year yield spreads, you know, relative inflation rates and a current account deficit. And that might work very well for six months or a year or longer and explain 70 or 80% of, of a market's moves. And then suddenly it doesn't. And so therefore, it's not robust and you can't just leave it to, to go. The second set of models tend to be mean reversion or relative value type models. Um, and the problem with them is that, you know, when trends really start to happen, you've got the wrong position and you lose all your skewness. So not only are we trying to sort of source positive alpha, we also want to have positive skew. And in 2015 or 2014, I made, you know, a really sort of slightly controversial decision where I said, we're abandoning these new sources of alpha and the pursuit of them per se. We want to be purely systematic, purely trend following. Um, and we just got to be a better trend follower. So we've got to look at what are the weaknesses with our classical trend following model and maybe just think blue sky about how we should trade trends. 
And that's, that's in fact what we did. And that, that went down like a dead duck, honestly, with all our investors <laughs> or potential investors. They thought I was bonkers. Yeah, I want to jump in on that. This is this is fascinating, uh, David, because it's actually some of the narrative I've used myself in terms of, you know, the weakness of trend following. So I'd love to hear your thoughts about what were the weaknesses that you identified and how did you uh, uh, try and try to improve those without giving any secret source away, of course, but how did you think about it and how did you think you could possibly become a better trend follower without leaving the, 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 the space, so to speak? Yeah, Well, I mean, if you think about the key features of trend following, you know, it, it's in all markets all the time. So the, a classical trend is, you know, picks up on trends very early. And when trends build and develop quickly, that's a fantastic position to be in. But in building what we call a response function, you know, the way that you're going to react to the market's price movements and volatility on a daily basis, for any individual market or sector, uh, you data mine. I mean, that's where you start typically modeling. And so you might say all bond markets and look at them and use all that data and conflate it in all kinds of different ways and try and find, sort out the signal from the noise and then try and use that signal in production to be an element of your portfolio. The fact is then, if you look to US equities or US bond markets or fixed income markets generally, they're basically gone up for the last 40 years. So any form of data mining will naturally give you a bias to want to be long Uh, in preference to being short, because you know bull markets traditionally go up the um, elevator and bear markets come down the escalator. So by the time you'd got short, you'd be too late. So there's a sort of skew, if you like, in the way that you would uh, position. So um, I think I said earlier that one of the features of the markets was that they were becoming you know more sideways for, for prolonged periods of time. Um, and therefore being in all markets all the time sort of felt like a weakness. So what we said, look, let's let, let's think about not new sources of alpha, but being a better trader, a better trend follower. Could we develop a conceptual approach to to trends, i.e., one that wasn't focused on on data mining as at its at its at its foundation, and in doing so, could we produce something that then only sought to be in the the meat of the trend, recognizing that we would miss out on the profits in the early stages. So it might not be as uh, efficient, if you like, but would allow us to stay out of markets that were just, you know, chopping sideways. Um, so that that was that was where we started, and we, so we've we've now run two broad approaches to trend following: one that's conceptual, and one that's the original uh, what you know, classical trend, if you like, or core trend. Okay, so almost sounding like, again, without giving any secret sauce away, that the newer approach, let's call it that, um, does not necessarily need to wait for the price to go against you before it starts getting out. I mean, it's it, it sounds like you you're okay, as you say, with with capturing the meat of the trend, but you don't you don't want to give back too much of. Yeah, of that's that. right. So, yeah. I mean, it does give back, obviously. You know, I mean, you know, the edge of this stuff is. It, Yeah, it's not persistent. But certainly when markets become overly exuberant, it's out 100%. Yeah, in, cla in classical trend following, you know, as, as you know, you know, we, we're not, we are, you know, if trends get quite aggressive, if they, you know, if they move to very strong momentum signals and move away from their kernel trend a long way, we're, we're naturally taking profits. Mm -hmm. 
I want to go back to another thing you mentioned, David, and that is you you talked about this funny story about um, uh, your your investor saying that it's much more fun to talk to uh, Louis Bacon and, and and so on and so forth. And uh, of course, he he's right. And and narrative does play a role uh, with investors, I think. And uh, one one person that we we like to quote a lot because uh, he does produce a lot of narrative is Cliff Asness. And um, and and he talks um, he talks about last year when and and we bring this up with everyone because we do think it's interesting to hear our different perspectives. But he 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 wrote uh, many papers last year. One of them was kind of this idea uh, or talked about this idea that maybe trend followers had become too concerned about the sharp ratio, um, and therefore we we put in uh, other stuff in the uh, in 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 the models that uh, maybe uh, we we shouldn't. Now you've made it very clear that you've kind of double down on trend or pure trend. So so that kind of answers that question. But, my, but maybe then it's a broader question for you. And that is, do you think we as an industry have become too focused uh, on on sharp? Um, and, 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 and the other question I wanted to ask you is that how do we change the narrative so that people don't look at sharp on an individual line item, but actually look at what we as trend followers can do for their portfolio shop, which really is what the shop was invented for and what people should be concerned about. Yeah. I mean, sharp's sort of one measure of performance, isn't it? But it, it, it I mean, from a, I mean, from a personal perspective, I wouldn't necessarily focus on sharp. I mean, I, you know, I don't want to put my money away and make 2% with a, a sharp of five. I'd much rather make 10% with a sharp of one and 20% with a sharp of half. I mean, so, yeah, and, and sharp is by definition, so, you know, uh, so it's quite a restrictive kind of measure. Um, you know, I think investors, and I think they do increasingly understand that, you know, traditional assets, fixed income, property, and primarily equities, uh, demonstrate negative skew. I mean, they've, you know, they do generally well, but their worst months are much, much worse and their worst years than their, than their best ones typically. And classical trend following tends to have the opposite profile. Although if you look at the so-called SOCGEN trend index, uh, it doesn't demonstrate much of a positive skew uh, anymore. It used to. Um, yeah, and, that, and that probably speaks to some of the bigger players um, perhaps employing uh, other types of strategies. Um, I mean, I don't know what they do, and I, I, I don't know them very well, and I, I've certainly never met Cliff Asner, uh, nor indeed read any of his papers, but um, I, uh, I've obviously heard of him. So if, if he's saying that, you know, trend followers have positive alpha, and that that positive alpha uh, tends to be concentrated in periods where traditional assets are doing badly, then I'd agree absolutely with him. Yeah. The, the other thing, the the other thing he talked about, um, and I think not just uh, Cliff Asnes, but many people talk about, is this kind of what what is the mandate? What what are trend followers? What is what is the role we have to um, sort of perform in a portfolio? And and he talks about a dual mandate. One is we have to produce absolute returns, and then also we have to provide quote unquote crisis alpha. Now um, I've been on record for many years saying I was very excited about the term crisis alpha. Uh, when it came out, um, because it it was so simple for people to remember. So when they went into an IC committee saying, well, we're going to invest in some alpha crisis, alpha strategies, people kind of almost understood what it was. 
later on I found that actually was a little bit counterproductive because then I had to argue every time there was a three-week wobble in the equity markets whether that was a crisis <laughs> or not. So, so, uh, well, so I, I, would, but, I, I would agree with your investors. I mean, I think it's, it's a nice catchy term, but it's probably not quite right. I say why, because it, it sounds to me like, you know, crisis alpha is almost like saying it's a tail risk hedge. I mean, it sort of takes you on that continuum. And, you know, I understand a tail risk is fund or hedge is something that, you know, it's like an insurance premium that you pay out each year or each quarter. And, you know, when the stock market has a really bad quarter or the bond market has a really bad run, it's going to pay off. So you expect to kind of pay away. And, you know, the fact is that, you know, as a trend follower, in the first quarter, uh, I mean, last last year was a classic example of this, right? 21 was a huge bull market in equities. Q1, 22 was a dump. And we all lost money, I presume, in equities, or we certainly did, right? <laughs> so the fir- the turning point of a trend, were almost, if, you're not, if you're a trend follower, you're almost certainly going to be losing. So the idea of crisis alpha then, if the crisis just begins and, and tanks, is, is a difficult one to argue. So I try and stay away from that tail risk hedge crisis alpha, and I prefer to describe it as a risk mitigator. So while we're trying to produce positive alpha that's got stable, non-correlated returns to equities primarily and fixed income secondly, we would hope that in sustained periods of risk off, that we could produce positive returns. And I think that, you know, one of the one of the sort of questions in the old days you used to get, or criticisms of trend following, was look, you know, let's look at your PL breakdown. And, you know, you guys uh, just make money trading f- being long fixed income. And, you know, what I would say that's true, but fixed income is rallying. You know, I could be at home washing the dog, or I could be long a fixed income, you know. And and so we want to be long a fixed income. The question then is, can you make money um, if fixed income ever goes down? And the answer is, you know, then we've never really had a great experience. We've got no statistical <laughs> evidence. I can't prove it to you that we could because uh, we weren't around in 94, which was the last real horrible market. And then last year, of course, we did. And I think, you know, what traditional investors found was that, you know, that bonds are a very nice hedge for equities uh, when equities are going down. However, equities are not a very nice hedge for bonds when bonds are going down. And, and that was sort of the lesson of, uh, of last year. And I think trend following was able, in the broader sense, you know, to produce you know, pretty stellar returns in a bear market in fixed income. Yeah. Now, before I turn it back to Alan, it kind of leads me to two follow-up questions of things that I'm hearing right now when speaking to investors and potential investors after a year like 2022, I get the distinct feeling that they continue, uh, for whatever reason, to look at trend following as a trade, meaning they think about now, oh, did I miss it? So that's kind of the first thing that comes on there, on, uh, you know, when they start uh, talking. And the other thing is uh, that I hear is that if trend following did so well in 2022, surely it must be going to give back a lot of those profits in 2023. So... I'd love to hear just kind of how you would have that conversation with people with people, and and try to uh, perhaps argue it uh, slightly differently to what they, they're saying. Yeah. Well, I mean, it's a very, very sensible question. I mean, you have to <laughs> – you can't – if you look at the sort of profile, you, you, you think that's right. I think from, in my mind, 
it's very difficult to time trend following. You really want to be investing in a trend follower that's, you know, hasn't really lost money very often and produces sort of steady alpha and then still does really well when you need them. If you try and time it, you know, I can remember in that dead decade, someone coming to me and said, you know, we've, we've looked at uh, our returns. He said, you know, if every time we got up 10%, we took profits and, and switched the model back on when we were back to plus one. Uh, you know, our return profile is this beautiful straight line of, you know, and I just said, you know, it's a good job. I'm the chief investment officer and you're not. Because uh, that, that, you know, that is a catastrophic uh, way to way to approach things. And, and, and that sort of speaks to that, I, you know, because had we had done so, the following year, of course, you know, returns were much higher than 10 and you'd never have got back in and you'd be, you'd be missing 100% return by now. So whatever it is, you know. Uh, so that, that I'm just trying to speak to the point, it's difficult to time it. As to the question of, you know, 22 was great, therefore 23 will be bad. Although 09 wasn't necessarily terrible for funds, but it did presage the sort of dead decade. I think there were some quite significant differences between 2008 and 22. You know, 2008 was a financial crisis. The whole financial system was blowing up. We had two huge high-profile bankruptcies. You know, trading had seized up. People were talking about not being able to get money out of your ATMs. The banking, interbank lending system had stopped. And then afterwards, we all saw the LIBOR arguments and everything else. <clears throat> I mean, interestingly, you know, we had this huge move in fixed income. I mean, you know, who'd have thought we'd have a 400 basis point upshift in short rates pretty well, uh, and nothing broke. I mean, one that and we could talk about perhaps, you know, that later, it's not really a systematic subject, but nonetheless, I mean, no, nothing broke. And, and, and we got inflation, and we haven't really seen any upsurge in inflation for, for many years. And given that we've got an inflationary environment, rates had to go up. And, and the so-called Fed put in the market, where stocks have a wobble and, you know, somebody's there's a financial crisis somewhere, the central banks have to intervene and bail the market out and bail the market participants out. The only place we saw that actually was in the UK uh, in October, when we got September, October, when the, the UK pension system was under severe pressure. So I think there's a stark contrast, really, between 22 and 08. And therefore, when you look at the following years, and I'm not predicting that 23 will be a great year for trend following, because that's not my job. But I do think over a multi-year period, it will be quite good. And because that Fed put doesn't exist and won't exist again until there's a real Armageddon, I don't think, or indeed till inflation gets down and they can be a bit more active, um, you know, markets are going to be much freer to find their own equilibrium. We start the first thing we talked about really was that markets going from one dynamic equilibria to another. Uh, so if markets are freer to move and we've got new factors, new macro factors like inflation in there, uh, that's a pretty big deal. And it probably means that markets will take some years to move around. So I'm quite I'm hopeful, yeah, quietly optimistic, not necessarily for this quarter, but for you know the immediate period ahead. Yeah, well, maybe just to pick up on a few of these points and move into the kind of research as well. But um, you talked about this conceptual trend and capturing the meat of the trend. Um, now, there is a, a kind of an alternative kind of classic view about, you know, you get these overextensions at the end of a trend, you know, and often, you know, just going back to the example of when you're up 10% and, and the investor wants to take profits, but actually 
at that point, you'll tend to have the risk on and it's either going to extend and be a really good trade or not. By focusing on that conceptual trend and, and the meat of the trend, in that component, do you give up a bit of skew, but you still get it in the, in the, in the core trend? Or how do, you, how do you think about kind of that balance of capturing the meat, but not giving up the skew? Yeah, so it depends really what you define as exuberance. You know, clearly in classical trend, as I said earlier, you know, I mean, certainly from our, I don't know what everybody else does, but in, in our form of classical trend following, there's a, there's a point of, of the trend momentum where we don't want to have such a big position, you know, for a given vol level. Our position wants, wants to be coming down. I mean, it would never, the trend could never get so strong, I don't think, that it would come down to zero. But there's certainly profit-taking in that. But when you're, class, when you're focusing then on the meat of the trend, you know you're missing the beginning, which means you've got to be more aggressive about your entry point when you go in. You can't scale in and feel good the way you were with classical trend following. Classical trend following is trying to mim- or statistically finds a way to mimic human nature. Right. I mean, you and I talk about a stock today after this this meeting, and you know your brothers, you know whatever, and it's it's going to be a great business, you know. And you tell me it's a pound and it's going to five, you know. Maybe on Monday, you know, I, I look at my Bloomberg and look it up, and I, I see it's trading at three pounds. I think, oh God, Alan's a genius, but I've missed it. Even though you've told me it's going to five, I'm not going to buy it, right? Yeah. But if it's trading one pound twenty, one pound thirty, I'll call you back and say, are you still sure about this? And maybe I'll buy a little bit. And, you know, a couple of weeks later, it's trading at two pounds. I'll probably buy more, right? Because I, I believe you and I believe your story. And that's kind of where classical trend mimics and uh, the market in a way. This is, this is a bit uh, the conceptual model, if you like. That doesn't, the conceptual really is about not using data. But in, in its entry point, because it's not in markets all the time, it just wants to be in them in the thick, misses that beginning of buying at one pound ten, one pound twenty, and building up. Therefore, it's got to go almost all in at two pounds or three pounds, hoping for the five. But what it get, you know, once the market then extends and you know, we have various measures to see how far we think it's extended away from some form of norm. Yes, you may miss a complete explosion in getting out completely. So you would give up some of your skew. Although we've been running the system now for uh, since 2015 and its skew uh, is, is, is pretty much the same as classical trend. And, you, you you mentioned um, you know that period where you you kind of thought you would you know try and be a better trend follower and so obviously did a lot of research around what are the possible avenues around that and you came you know with with up a conceptual trend. What about some of the other things? Oh, we, we talked about non-trend and you said okay for various reasons uh, kind of factor models were, were not um, a good fit. You know, some people talk about speed. You know, you, you said maybe trade slower. Obviously, from the perspective of the kind of crisis alpha risk mitigation, there might be an argument for, for, for trading faster at times. Is that something That's right. you, you think about? Um, and and what, what, what have the re- what's the research shown on, on, on that side? Yeah. I mean, listen, when we, when, we, when we change anything in the model, we do it extremely cautiously, right, in a very small way. Typically, and we you know, say so when we put you know what we call conviction trend in the the the, you know, the conceptual trend, it only started in a very small way, and it took years to build up to be you know a, a pretty well a half of the portfolio. Uh, but equally, even relatively modest um, things like changing speeds, you know, needs to be done quite cautiously. So we kind of understood that slower, tr- or we felt that slower trends would be better. 
But we didn't want to slow ours all the way down because, you know, we couldn't predict when the regime was going to change. So there was some minor slowing, which I think was 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 sensible. And then as you know, the regime's begun to change once again now, a couple of years ago, we started to see the change with the COVID crisis and, you know, very rapid, I mean, very rapid regime shift. If you think in March 2020, you know, we had a bear market in the first quarter and we were at new all-time highs by the end of the second quarter. I mean, two complete regimes within six months. It was quite extraordinary. So, yeah, that would bias you to be a little bit quicker. But our moves are, are very modest. But what we did think about, actually, was, you know, in a classical approach to trend following is if you had 100 markets and they were all equally liquid, you would start by giving them all 1% each of your capital. And your positions would just build up from the strength and quality of the momentum signal um, in each of those markets. So you'd be in trading big positions in markets that had strong momentum and small positions in markets that had weak momentum. And um, that's kind of a fixed uh, approach to to your capital allocation. When you run a conceptual model and you're not in all markets all the time, that doesn't work because you might only be in 60% of the markets and they might all be fixed income in the dollar. So you can't rely on some long-run correlation coefficient to size your positions because, you know, the, the portfolio is diversified. You've got some benefit there that you need to be taking care of and understanding your risk. So you have to have a dynamic approach to uh, uh, risk management. So we started to think as well a little bit about could we be a bit more dynamic in terms of, uh, of that fixed allocation classical trend. So we're not overly dynamic, but each quarter uh, we're informed by, you know, I think a sort of um, signal-to-noise ratio system, essentially, that we call trend efficiency. And it just guides. So if we're 25% in equities, 25% foreign exchange, commodities, and interest rates as an opening permutation, you know, we might be guided, you know, to have 20% in equities and 30% in fixed income. But we wouldn't, you know, we wouldn't move beyond, much beyond those sort of parameters. So it's a... It's a relative modulator um, that, that tries to address a, another weakness. It's a weakness out of strength. The fixed allocation is both, right? But it's a feature. Uh, maybe maybe we could just improve a little bit on that. And so is that allocating more risk to the markets that have been trending recently? Is, is that it in simple terms? Well, it, it's not quite they've been trending, but they exhibit a higher signal-to-noise ratio. Because you, you you may you know you, you know a trend might go from a hundred to four hundred, but it might be going in a very noisy way. We'd rather be in a trend that was going from a hundred to hundred and fifty, but doing it one one day at a time. So, so those markets are showing more favourable trending characteristics. Yeah, yeah, they're less, no- I less think noisy. It, they're yeah. just less noisy. Yeah. But but yeah. I, I suppose what I'm getting to is that. By making that, so it's a relative. It's a relative measure. Yeah. Al. Okay. So it doesn't it doesn't really help you. Uh, unless you've got the core alpha producer underneath it, but but there's an is there inherently an assumption that those matter that 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 persists for a, for a bit of time that you 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 know that that you're going to get a slightly better return by upweighting that gradually, but but presumably it's a fairly weak effect if you're only making this a small small tilt. Is that fair to say? Yeah, yeah. Well, I think you know it can have it could have quite you know, if you did the full tilt it recommended you you, you know or you, you conceptually came out you could have quite profound effects but you know 
Well, you know, I think I said at the beginning, you know, we want to have kind of stable, robust returns. And if we were banging our risk allocations from, you know, 80% equities to 20% equities quarter by quarter, there'd be a lot of binary market risk in there. That would completely undermine our longer-term goal. Okay. So that's interesting. Is it? I mean, it's kind of... Um... I mean, you, you talked on like, like generating an alpha absolute return, but but having the stability of performance is is kind of a secondary objective, and the, the kind of the risk mitigation, as you say, it's kind of a, a secondary objective there in the background as well. Is that how you think about it? Yeah, I think yeah, I think that's right. I think that's right. We want, as I said, we want to be in this business for the long run. So we've got you, know, yeah, we've got to have a really stable, robust approach. I mean, it's a truism of you know, I'm, you're sure you're going to ask me something about research, but I might preempt it and say you know that. You know, no researcher has ever brought me a, a model in enhancement or new model that has not backtested well. Right? I mean, e everything backtests really. You know, my job and our risk committee's job is to sort of see the wood for the trees a little bit and, and uh, uh, you know, apply you know, a very healthy dose of scepticism to these things. And, and outside of that kind of significant change, the, con the development of uh, conceptual trend, so what what are the, the the other kind of smaller incremental changes that that the research has thrown up? Is it, um, I mean, do, do you alter this? Do you do kind of an annual review of the speeds you trade at, or is it the execution, or, or what would you say that, that that is the focus? Yeah, no, no, we do do an annual review, but we only move, you know if we move them, you know, if if, if there are ten speeds, we might you know we're not going to move them one, you know, so it, it's at the margin. It, it may it may help. Uh, and I say quarterly, we look at our classical trend following and think about our core, you know, our, our four asset classes and, and where our risk should be thing. You know, we want to add new markets uh, as, as assets. You know, one of the great benefits of a, of a trend follower is it's a machine, so it can be in all markets. It doesn't, the commodity trader doesn't get tired or going through a divorce and need some time off. I mean, it's in the markets all, all the time, but that's really important. So you get this diversification benefit. Which is really key to, I believe, key to our return. So, and as assets grow, we need to add meaningful markets uh, that give us, you know, more liquidity uh, and hopefully, you know, don't compromise our diversification. Can I ask you a question about that, uh, uh, David? And that is, uh, first of all, uh, I'm curious how many markets you trade today, but also where do you think you can go to in terms of markets and they still be meaningful, as you say, meaningful additions? Yeah, that's a great question. And it's not one I can give you a very full answer to. I mean, I can tell you we trade 130 something markets uh, uh, right now, up from you know 110 or so a couple of years ago. So add them slowly and cautiously as assets have, uh, have grown. Um, and then there's this issue of alternative markets. And I suppose, yeah, that's slightly definitional, right? You know, it depends what you call an alternative market. I think, you know, we're offering daily liquidity. So we don't want to put anything in that's uh, too esoteric or we can, or we might get stuck in um, uh, for a period of time. So everything's got to meet quite strict liquidity requirements. I mean, not that anybody really uses daily liquidity, right? I mean, it's, it's a sort of, you know, that, you know, we generally have redemptions of subscriptions at month ends like we used to, but, but nonetheless, it's a feature, and it's one that we have to pay, be very cognizant of, because um, I think that's in a real crisis. I think that's kind of important. Um, so we want to add, you know, new markets. Some may call them alternative, some may not. You know, and 
you know, we put we run them through, we test them, and see any diversification benefits. And clearly, you know, you're unlikely to find a new German Bund contract tomorrow that you're not trading. You know, something with that profound liquidity or a new dollar yen. So everything, by definition, is going to be um, lower a lower rank liquidity bucket. Um, so you know, we don't want to go down to trading potatoes in Norwich, but we you know we need to you know, find things with sufficient liquidity, but recognize that they're probably less liquid uh, and therefore we can have a lot less in them than we can in the main in the main parts of the book. Now, you've talked about some quite interesting things, I, I find, because you've, you've talked about sort of your journey to uh, make trend following better has taken you into thinking about entries differently. I think that's interesting. We don't come across that so often. You talked about this new conceptual or conviction trend where you definitely also are dealing with your exits differently. Uh, I think that's very interesting. And you've also talked about um, that you needed to rethink kind of correlations because here you have uh, a part of your portfolio that is not always in the market. So there's one kind of thing that I've think that I would love to ask you because I think that's the maybe the fourth thing that we all look at when we when we design these um systems and that's volatility have you thought differently about volatility have the uh dark uh, 10-year period uh taught you anything about maybe um we need to look at volatility differently yeah I'd love to hear your thoughts on that yeah um Actually, we didn't look at volatility that much in the dark period. We did look at it at the beginning of the dark period, I suppose, in that, you know, but not because we knew we were in the dark period. You know, we looked at a, you know, we did have some quite serious brains try and rebuild our vol estimators. Um, you know, and they spent a year or so doing it. And and in the end, they beat our original vol estimator by a point oh something. And, you know, the, compl- the added complexity, you know, uh, was not worth the, the 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 change yeah i think in general you know when you, when you think about systematic strategies uh or yeah any kind of systematic trading across a whole spectrum you know you can either be at one end of the spectrum where you innovate all the time and your i guess your pitch is you know we've got the cleverest guys in the world and we're constantly doing stuff and just trust us you know or you know, you say that, you know, we've got a really stable approach to this. And while the past is no guide to the future, this is what we did then. And this is still what we're kind of doing now. And if you're at the the, the, the latter of those, which we are, then, you know, we know that we need to research and innovate. But, you know, because in order to, you know, stay the same, you must change. Uh, but equally, you know, we've got to do that really cautiously. And, you know, Vol is obviously a massive component of uh, of our portfolio construction so the answer is yes we did we did have a whole big multi-year project in it um but that was some time ago and maybe it's something we should look at again okay another thing that we've heard uh from people that we talked to that they spend a lot of time actually some people say that's the biggest part of their research uh efforts uh now um is execution And uh, I think a, a lot of people will be aware, of course, that the more AUM you have, uh, probably the more efforts you need to spend on your execution. 
But do you think there's also kind of a limit to how much you can do in that uh, area before it really doesn't matter anymore, uh, so to speak? Yeah, I mean, I mean, listen, we work quite hard at our execution too. Um, I mean, I think you know, it's 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 our fiduciary duty to you know, and our third desire to be as much alpha as we can. We want to pay as little execution costs as we can. Um, yeah, I mean, there must be decline. There are generally declining uh, returns to all investments. So I'd agree that you know we've got quite a long way down uh, the refinement of our execution process. Yeah. One final thing before I hand it back to you, Alan. Um, th- this is another topic that came up during last year. Um, not that it was new; it's been in there for qu- quite a while. Um, and it's this, uh, you know, CTA replication or trend replication. We obviously knew about this uh, quite a long time ago. Some people tried, failed. And um, and maybe they were building too simple models. Maybe they didn't know enough about real trend following, frankly, but just wanted to come out there because it was popular after the GFC. And and they could use the argument of saying, well, we it's so simple that we can do it uh, for a much cheaper price. Now, I have no idea what fees you charge, by the way, David. So maybe I'm I'm, I'm, I'm setting myself up here for failure. But anyways... <laughs> we're, we're, we're very reasonable, Neil. <laughs> okay. okay, okay. So, but my, my I guess my question is, the new breed of replication strategies are focused uh, predominantly on... Um, regressions, meaning they don't actually have their own model. They're just trying to estimate what exposure, you know, you and and the other members of the SockGen uh, CTA index have in their portfolio. And I'm not a quant, uh, so I, but I have this inner feeling that there's some risks in doing that. I mean, they say, well, if you pick one manager, there's a manager risk. Yeah, of course there is. But I'm thinking, well, there must be a replicator risk somewhere. <laughs> so maybe you can help me uh, identify where these risks might lie. Yeah, and that's, a, that's a really good question. I, I can remember um, when I, when we first started DG Partners and we were trading, you know, macro RV, um, RV macro really, um, and some very sophisticated investor came in. So it was a couple of years later, and said, so, "Yeah, we had quite a good track record." And, and he he said, "You know, the two PhDs came in and they said, you know, we've managed to replicate your trading. We can break it down to these three factors." And I, I came out of the meeting distraught. I thought, "Yeah, that's it." <laughs> I'm out of business. <laughs> anyway, luckily, their model, like all my factor models, didn't you know didn't work uh, when regimes changed. So I, I think there's a great there's obviously some danger in someone replicating an index without really understanding what's driving it. And here we've got all these teams of people seeking to you know move forward in a nice gradual way. I mean, I don't know how other people do it, but certainly certainly we do. Uh, I mean, I think. You know, if you can find someone that can consistently beat the index and you kind of like the management and you like the the stability of the firm, um, you, I mean, and, and you're looking at that as a net of fee basis, then it strikes me as being insane to invest in the in the uh, replicator. Yeah, yeah. Alan, where do we go um, next? Yeah. Insane might be a bit strong. But... <laughs> no, no, I mean, well, the thing is, I, I I I agree with you, David. But I have also said that there is one thing about replication that I kind of like, um, and it's because they can package it in ETFs, which we would probably never do, really, because then we have to disclose our positions every day. So most likely, the firms that you know that are our friends and peers wouldn't do it. Having said that, if they don't blow up and they can get something that's close and it allows 
many more smaller investors to get exposure to trend in their portfolio, all power to them. That's kind of what I like about it. But I am worried that it's not going to pan out too well at some point, and and then it might hurt the whole industry. Yeah, no, that's a very good point. Yeah, that's a very good point. I agree. Maybe just moving on to talk a little bit about risk management um, and and, um, a few topics around that. And, and, And I guess one... Again, coming back to the kind of discretionary uh, uh, input, so obviously this is something that that managers have uh, different uh, thoughts on. But 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 you do, uh, you know, obviously there will be some instances where there may be a big event coming up, or um, you know, uh, well, well, from your perspective, what are the kind of uh, areas where where it's reasonable as a trend follower to to make some kind of discretionary adjustment, um, if any? Yeah, uh, that, that's a really that's a very good question. Our systematic approach, it, you know, the risk management is endogenous; it's within the models. It's not ri- run by stop losses or anything like that. But there's a because a consistent and rigorous approach to going in and out of of risk with various price data. And I think we talked earlier about building a portfolio up, and you have to make in building a portfolio up, you need to think about the implicit correlations between the positions that you have. And if you want to be stable, you probably want to use, you know, a reasonably medium-term uh, correlation measure. And and I think for us, you know, it was 2010 where this really, the the light bulb went off. And it was uh, QE, the lead-up to QE2 in that summer. Um, everyone was speculating that uh, Ben Bernanke at the time was going to launch this big program. And the markets, you know, the dollar started going down aggressively. Equities rallied. Bonds rallied and commodities were rallying. So, yeah, our measure of say value at risk to pick one measure of risk management was was high, but was and we were making a fortune by the way. There were the, you know, the trends followers in general were having a good run, but actually uh, we were we weren't properly account. You know, we weren't measuring the risk um, in the way that the market was positioning itself because any correlation factor that we had was was probably wrong because the markets actually were demonstrating a correlation factor of one or very close to one so that made us think that we should you know have more rigorous exogenous limits on the model and the key one really is to think about a stress test for us that, that says you know what kind of horrific loss in a short period could we survive as a business and would investors find tolerable given our return profile so we pick a number and we say, okay, if each sector does X, Y, and Z, and that X, Y, and Z are worse than they've ever done in a given day, and that all four sectors go against us, and not only that, but all the products within those sectors go against us by that amount, because some may be long and some may be short, we can't lose more than Y. And that is a nice, easy, conceptual way to put an exogenous limit on that stops your portfolio um, not recognizing short-term big correlation changes, for instance. And then when you get to specific events, you know, we we have quite a detailed meeting every pretty well every week with the, of what we call a, the risk committee, you know, where we, we look through all the dynamics of the market, all our positions, lots of different risk metrics, uh, lots of different ways of look, splicing and dicing the portfolio, and we also look at all the fundamental risks. I mean, we look at those every day. But you know, so, if, for example, you know, we were taking the view that it was likely that Russia this time, you know, a month January twenty-two, uh, 
that Russia was likely to be invading Ukraine, even though we were short the ruble, which probably would have been the right trade in the short term, it wasn't really a market for us. So we've got to make those decisions. And I don't, you know, that's that's kind of a discretion in the model, I suppose. Yeah. Um, and so yeah, you mentioned there about, okay, if if all everything went reverse at the same time and that, that kind of exogenous limit, which I guess to limit your loss to that level, you've got to be able to get out. So there's kind of an inherent assumption around liquidity. Um, what's your thinking around liquidity? I mean, you do see in the media sometimes people saying the liquidity isn't as good. You know, we had crazy moves and you, know, you mentioned the, the UK um, uh, interest rate markets and in cable around that time and you know going back 2020 um, uh, treasuries uh, you know bid asks widened out sub- substantially are you you know you've been in markets you know multiple decades what's your read on the liquidity in markets now versus the past yeah I mean um, liquidity is always a, a, a chief concern it should be for any risk manager of, of any, not just systematic, but 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 for us all. Uh, and clearly, you know, systematic strategies are quite an important part of markets. You know, some people say up to ten percent of, of 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 assets or whatever. And there is, a, I think, you know, post the financial crisis, there's been a sort of disintermediation of the banking system, and lots of risk is placed in uh, end investors, if you like, hands. And there may be a false sense of liquidity in their holdings. And we have to be cognizant of that, I think, thinking about the bid offers. And, you know, if you stress test markets, you know, think, you know, to your point, you know, what, what's the, you can't just stress test the move. You've got to think about, you know, what's your likely bid offer in there as well. So you can, you could, you could do that. Or you could just add some to the stress test. So I would say liquidity is fine right now. We haven't found any difficulties through at all really last year. I mean, clearly some pretty scary moments in UK fixed income in particular uh, in that period. But as I say, when things start to move profoundly like that, we are naturally reducing risk in an absolute absolute sense. Yeah. And I mean, you talked about the kind of the 2010 um, period and and kind of, you know, underestimating correlation or, or that, that kind of idea what about the, the kind of 2018 type scenario where you know equities rallied very substantially say 2017 and it was a kind of a low vol environment so people were naturally getting levered up uh, in in the, in the trade and then obviously we had the the sharp reversal in 2018 so was that something that the model just sailed through mechanically or did you have to make any kind of adjustments for an unusually low vol environment and and I suppose in relation to you know interest rate markets going back over over the last decade or so up until last year how did you think about all of that yeah you're testing my history now <laughs> so 2018 was was uh, was was volmageddon, volmageddon right? exactly yeah volmageddon that was when in february march whatever the uh the thing was yeah we we were we were very concerned about the persistent decline in, in in volatility in equity markets. I think the VIX got down to almost single digits or did get down to single digits. And yeah, it did make us uh, think quite hard. And yes, we did have to think very hard about that as a risk committee, yes. And, and we managed to get through it. Okay. Um, Niels? Yeah, I was just going to jump in. I want to get back to you, Alan, but I just want to jump in on this point about liquidity because I think with you, David, we can throw a few things uh, at you, uh, given your background, that may not be kind of strictly how 
we as trend followers and systematic managers think about it. But but you, we talked about liquidity. We talk about it off most of the time, 99% of the time. I think we talk about it as, oh, can we execute our trades, the bid offer spread, you know, the volumes, et cetera, et cetera. And then one of our previous guests on the podcast uh, in a different series, Michael Howe from Crossborder, he talks about liquidity in a slightly different way as well. He talks about market liquidity and then he talks about funding liquidity. And he talks about funding liquidity as being kind of, is there enough liquidity in the system to basically fund, um, you know, what uh, corporates are doing and, and so on and so forth. Um, and and he's talking about this at uh, currently, uh, whereby it, it used to be, you know, can you fund new projects? Can you do CapEx? But now... What it's more uh, about is actually can you, uh, you know, refinance when you get to your refinancing, you refinance your your debt, and there's a lot of it, and so to speak, and and I'm and I'm kind of thinking, well, there's clearly a link between the two, so I'm just curious whether this is also a kind of risk, even though it may not impact right now today how you're executing your next bun trade, but this, is this something that well, given what we saw, I guess in 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 the gilts markets, and God forbid it had happened in the in the U.S. Treasury markets, then that probably would have been a completely different um, scenario. But is this also kind of a risk that you, as a trend follower, a systematic trend follower, have to conceptualize a bit somehow? Yeah, no, I, I think we do. I don't think there's any immediate action. If I, if I put my sort of systematic hat down and just sort of talk to you in, in the round about that, because I, I think it's, it's an interesting it's an interesting point that the, the chap brings up. And I mean, one way I, we've thought about it at least is to say, you know, listen, you know, over the last couple of years, the, the, <clears throat> since the COVID crisis, the, let's say the Fed's balance sheet blew up by five trillion dollars, and basically bought mortgages and primarily U.S. treasuries. So typically, the buying of those securities, had they been issued to the free market, would then have been held on bank balance sheets and individual balance sheets. So when rates rise, there's a huge amount of pain in the financial sector because they've got, even if, even if they're held, on, held to maturity books in banks, there's a sort of capital hit at the front end. And there's a funding hit to the to their PL, which means there would have been more panic because they would have been paying in derivatives if they couldn't sell the securities or liquidating the risk somehow. And and that would have been a big stress on market liquidity. I mean, I think we'd have seen more profound moves. But it, the fact was that, that in that incredible period of virtually zero interest rates across the curve, uh, all that fixed rate lending was essentially being done by the authorities who, of course, are not accruing a loss, and therefore we're not seeing the stress from them in the marketplace. So you've got the fixed-rate borrowers are fine, and then the fixed-rate lenders are not taking the pain that they would ordinarily have done with a 400 basis point or 300 basis point uh, rate move. And then if you talk about the... I'm no expert in private equity and so on, but, you know, I think there's been obviously a huge amount of capital inflows into, in, into that sector, and when they do these buyouts, they, I assume that they do, you know, staged funding. So they have some fixed for 10 years, some for five years, some for one year, some for two years. So the pain of the higher rates is only feeding in slowly. As the first tranches, maybe they had 10% for a year or whatever. And then that, you know, they, now they're having to pay on 10% of their funding cost. you know, has gone up 400 points or 500 points, with the spread widening. Um, so I think it's certainly, you know, and as time goes by, that's going to 
come into the market and create uh, a new stress. It, it, so it's, I think it's something for us to be cognizant of the of the big picture, but it sort of explains a bit why, you know, actually, you know, in that huge bear market, outside of that one period with guilds, you know, everything was perfectly tradable, perfectly, you know, reasonably tradable. There were very few air pockets. Yeah, well, I mean, this is coming back to the point uh, as to what you talked about at the start, um, you know, how rates have gone up four or five percent and, and nothing has broken. And um, and it's obviously, uh, we, 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 you know, the, the banking sister hasn't taken on that risk in the same way, which, but it's kind of, um, it's kind of curious because, you know, obviously we had QE and what did QE do? It kind of pushed people into, pushed pushed investors into taking on more duration, more, more risk. Um, uh, So you would have thought you would have seen pain for investors, but we haven't really seen that yet either, which is, uh, are you surprised about that? Well, that's the, that's the only way I could really explain it. I mean, I think we did see pain. We did see pain in some end holders, right? Like pension plans and big institutions generally. And we're seeing pain now in, you know, in, in you read about in, in real estate funds and this sort of thing, uh, you know, with liquidity, to your point about liquidity problems there. But that, that's, the, that's the only way I can sort of rationalize it at the moment. Just, just one topic. Sorry, before in conscious of time, I wanted to get your perspective on was around just you know the role of trend following in in, in a in a larger portfolio in in a broader portfolio. Um, you know, if if you were say if you were moving away from from GD, DG partners and you got a CIO role at an endowment, um, what would you be thinking is the right asset allocation and and the right allocation to to trend <laughs> uh, within that? Well, you know, I, I think if you run you guys might be better at this. I think if you run, you know, lots of uh, modeling, you'd end up with quite a big allocation to trend following. Uh, and I would suggest that that's probably uh, not as far as I would go as in a endowment. But you would think you've got to have a, a fairly healthy allocation somewhere around, you know, the 10% mark. Okay. but so, um, Five to 10%. Okay. So you would still, I mean, is that just the behavioral? I mean, I, I think if you ran the numbers, it, it might be somewhere closer to 30 or 40%, if maybe even higher. No, that, no that, 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 that's where we got it. But I, I, I think that would be, uh, that would be, that would be crazy. I, I couldn't, I, I, as I, as the CIO of an adapter, couldn't do that. Cause in the end, you know, I want to invest in real GDP in a way, cause I want to, I want to get my long run, you know, liabilities matched. But equally, I've got to recognize that, you know, just being long of real assets, uh, has some dangerous potholes in the road. And last year was one of them. So using some capital perhaps more usefully in something like trend following rather than levering long your fixed income portfolio might be a better strategy. Yeah. Uh, but it, I mean, it's interesting, even from the perspective of, you know, that we may be going into a different world, uh, higher inflation, as you said, more more macro opportunity could be more challenging for traditional assets and obviously, we could have, you know, as you say, you could have a, a more persistent positive correlation between bonds and equities. From that perspective, it, it, it's an odd argument for an even higher allocation, would you say? Well, you, you, listen, you know, we just want to be the best trend follower that we can be. And the markets will, will, will unfold will as they out. do. Yeah. Niels? 
Yeah, speaking on that and and, and kind of um, uh, dreaming a little bit that maybe uh, in the next few months people or investors will realize that maybe they should have a bigger allocation, perhaps not 30 or 40%, but they should have a bigger allocation because, of course, all the evidence tell them that they should, right? So I've seen, so we've talked to some managers that uh, kind of track what they call trend crowding. Um, it brings me to a kind of a, a just a topic before we wrap up in terms of Maybe industry capacity. You can talk about your own capacity if you want, but but also industry capacity. How do you see that? I mean, is there a I, not that I, I mean after I've done this for more than thirty years and I still have no sense that there's ever going to be too much money in trend following. Frankly, but anyways, is, is there certain things where you would say, yeah, I mean, we could actually end up in a situation where there's just not enough quote unquote capacity um, to to uh, you know where it would affect. Um, trend following as a strategy? Because that's another thing that people often throw at us uh, is, oh, well, too many people are doing that. So clearly you can't you can't keep to delivering the returns you did back in the 70s and the 80s and the 90s. Yeah. Yet we do, of course. But. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, conceptually, you know, you've got to think that the more cash goes into any strategy, um, the returns from that strategy are likely to diminish. Within reason, you could argue they might go up in the very first instance because you're you've got better systems and you can invest more and so on. But once you get to critical mass and you grow, uh, you would think that any any strategy, be it RV or be it, you know long some kind of micro long short in technology stocks, the more cash that goes into that, or the more that goes into event driven or anything else, returns you'd expect to diminish. I think that's that's a reasonable expectation. You know where we stand exactly in that cycle right now. Uh, in trend is it's likely that you know that more assets I think will come in than will leave, um, but I think those those sorts of diminishment diminished returns are relatively minor, given the big picture uh, returns on offer, and we're not yet at some kind of tipping point where uh, you know trend followers are just too big for the markets. I mean I think you know we're still at a a good distance from that. Yeah, no, I agree with that. Uh, just want to wrap up with two small, simple questions. Well, I say it's simple, but I think they are. Um, and that is kind so. of something. We, yeah, yeah. So, uh, so it's something. The first one is one thing that we've asked everyone because we think it's kind of funny to hear uh, the different uh, answers. And of course, some of the answers are the same. But anyways, let's go for it. Um, and that is, you know, what's the one thing you hear about trend following that you disagree with the most? One thing that that, that sort of can rile me a little bit is when when someone says, oh, all trend followers are the same. Going back to your point about the investing in the ETF, you know, I think it's true to say that unless you're 70 or 80% correlated to the trend following index, you're probably not a trend follower. So, you know, we're, we're going to be more correlated than perhaps some other, you know, the dispersion is likely to be less wide in, in trend following than it is in, in, in many other strategies. But that doesn't mean that there isn't dispersion and there isn't better managers and worse managers. And I think, you know, all the efforts and things we've spoken about today, you know, uh, you know we haven't just made a model 20 years ago, switched it on and left it. Um, and I think it's important that, you know, that not only are some changes made, but that they're transparently made for investors so that they're not surprised uh, with what's happening. They're kind of brought along the journey. Absolutely. Yeah. Final question for you, David, and that is, um, you know, looking into um, 
2023 and beyond maybe, um, given the fact what we've gone through now um, with 2022 and so on and so forth. What are you most excited about? Um, and it could be anything, could be from your business perspective, from a market opportunity ex- uh, perspective, but also uh, if there's anything that you're a little bit maybe concerned about. Um Listen, one can never rest on 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 your laurels. You know, we'd probably be unlikely that we're going to have a year as uh, as, as as solid as, as the last year as a, a as an industry. So I, I'm not overly concerned. You know, I think you know from our business perspective, we're in quite a nice place. Hopefully, we'll raise some more assets. Uh, you know, this year, we're always concerned that when markets lack direction and there isn't a fundamental driver, that returns are going to be lackluster in those types of environments. And that people can, you know, get bored of trend following and go back to your earlier point was that, uh, well, you had one in 08, a great year, you know, a couple of good years here and there, and then another banner year. Maybe we'll just wait two or three years and then they forget. So I think it's important that there's an, an allocation and a dialogue with investors now and that we don't we don't slip into, you know, a too choppy markets for too long. Yeah. Great place to end our conversation. Uh, David, this has been uh, delightful. Thank you so much for being on the podcast, for sharing your thoughts and insights with us. We hope we can do this again sometime in the future. And to all of you listening today, I hope that you were able to take something from today's conversation onto your own investment journey. And if you did, please share these episodes with your friends and colleagues. From Alan and me, thanks so much for listening. We look forward to being back with you on the next episode of Top Traders Unplugged as we continue our deep dive into the CTA industry. And in the meantime, go check out the show notes for this episode and all the other resources you can find on our website. And not least, as usual, take care of yourself and take care of each other. Thanks for listening to Top Traders Unplugged. If you feel you learned something of value from today's episode, the best way to stay updated is to go on over to iTunes and subscribe to the show so that you'll be sure to get all the new episodes as they're released. We have some amazing guests lined up for you. And to ensure our show continues to grow, please leave us an honest rating and review in iTunes. It only takes a minute and it's the best way to show us you love the podcast. We'll see you next time on Top Traders Unplugged.